0: If you have your Bibles with you, would you open them to Matthew chapter 6? Uh, if you would also keep, hopefully you've got more than just one finger and you can put another one back in the book of James. Uh, James chapter 4 verses 1 through 7 we will kind of be splitting some time in between these two verses. And we're going to start a, a new sermon series. We finished our work through Galatians, which for some of you was probably a happy and momentous occasion. We finally got through that short book, uh, but we are now going to work on thinking through and talking about and seeking out the scriptures about what prayer is for. And this is going to be paralleled with our changing of our community or our common prayer service that we have together as Crossway comes together no longer. uh, For the month of June, we will be doing that on the second Saturday, as we almost always do. But after that in July, we will be changing the way we meet together, and we will be meeting on Wednesday evenings. Um, And and part of that is for numerous practical reasons. uh, But in conjunction with that, we would like to teach and think through and have a people who are dedicated to prayer. We, we clearly want you to be the praying kind of people. We realize that we're, much of the changes that we're making is simply because of attendance, but we, we want to make it very clear that attendance is not what we're going for. We, we don't care if, if this place is packed out in attendance, but people are not actually praying. We want people to be here and praying. We don't want you to come to stuff just to come to stuff. And There is not an elder or a deacon or anyone who is deeply involved in the Bible who wants anyone here to just show up to show up. We're not counting heads, but we're counting souls. We want you to be present and active with us. So we want you to know not only what to pray, but the purpose of prayer, the nature of prayer, how you pray, and then even the types of prayer as we go through Scripture and look at this. So we're going to be embarking today on a, a journey through scripture, and this is the first sermon of a whole sermon series on prayer. Because we believe that prayer is a central facet of growth in the Christian life, as we've been talking about in Sunday school, the first and primary way that you will grow in Christ is by taking in his word. Only second to that is prayer. Prayer is immensely important and something that many of us do very, very poorly. And I would include myself in that. And so this is something that will be hopefully very useful to my life and to me and my ministry. And I pray that it is useful to you as well. It is it is clearly summer. It's going to be 90 some degrees today, and it means that it is pool weather. And so whenever my kids go into the pool, especially early on in the summer, if the pool is cold, there are two different approaches to that. There is one that my son takes where you just sort of tiptoe in, and that is foolishness because it only prolongs the amount of difficulty that you have being accustomed to the pool. So uh, he runs away from me because he knows that I will pick him up and throw him into the deep end, which my daughters do anyways. They will, Especially my eldest daughter will just jump into to the deep, and I encourage them to do that. And and that was kind of my, my thoughts going into this, that we were just going to jump in. I wanted to get into prayer. I wanted to get into looking at the, the idea behind this is to look at the various types of prayer that we have in the Bible. So we have you know, intercessory prayer where Moses intercedes for the people in Exodus 32. We have prayers of lament where Jeremiah is lamenting the state of Jerusalem in the book of Lamentations. We have Thanksgiving prayers from, from Paul. We have prayers of, of confession from David. We, we want to look at those kind of prayers, and I was going to jump directly into that, and then I realized that that kind of advice only works if people know that they should go in the pool. That kind of advice only works if people are already prone to going in the pool. There's a whole different kind of thing that has to happen if people don't want to go swimming. And many of you know that you ought to pray. But the foundational work needs to sort of be laid before we can talk about the kind of prayer that we offer. And we are not, by the way, just doing this because it's, necessary, practically. We're doing this because Christ himself does this very thing. So in Matthew chapter 6, if many of you knew that we were opening to Matthew chapter 6 and teaching on prayer, you might think that what we're going to do is go through the Lord's Prayer and that model prayer that he gives us in verses 9 through 13. And that would be a good thing to do. And we will probably end this sermon series back at those verses, but we will not start them with those verses. Instead, we will be looking at the verses directly preceding that. These are the foundational verses for why Christ and how Christ lays out what prayer is. And what I would like to tell you this morning is this. God rewards the prayers of the humble in faith. That is the foundation for why we pray, for what we pray, for how we pray. We pray because God rewards the prayers of the humble in faith. Many of you know you're supposed to pray, but you don't know the right reason for it. You don't even know if there's a reason for it. Today, I hope to encourage you down this path that you will pray because God rewards the prayers of the humble in faith. In faith, And so what we are going to do this morning is just simply walk through each of the major words in that. God rewards, prayers, humble, and faith. We're going to walk through each of those and show you how Scripture speaks of this. So the first thing we're going to do is read Matthew, if you would, from verses 5 through 8 in chapter 6. Jesus, our Lord, says this when you pray. You must not be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. And truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. This is the word of our Lord. The first thing we're going to look at today is the word God. So in my definition of why we pray, I said God rewards the prayers of the humble in faith. And in Matthew 7 and 8, there is a clear emphasis on understanding whom we pray to. It's understanding the God that we pray to. Jesus says you are not to heap up empty phrases. You're not supposed to babble in your prayers to God. The Gentiles do this. The unbelievers do this, he says, because they think that they will be heard. Let me give you four reasons why. This seems like a sermon within a sermon, but we'll get through it. Four reasons why Jesus says this. First, God is not many There aren't many gods. There is one God. This is why we are not to babble before God. If you go to ancient Greek sources, and Jesus most likely would have known this, some of the Greeks thought that you could just incessantly talk, and eventually you would say something that would make a god do something for you. There were magical incantations that you would just say over and over and over again in order to show your sincerity or in order to show your devotion or something like that. Clearly, he could be talking about that. But there are other times when they say, no, you should just say very simply what you want and leave it at that. A couple of commentators, Davies and Allison, who wrote very, very helpful commentaries, especially the latter ones, on the book of Matthew, state very clearly, and I think correctly, that this has to be understood in terms of polytheism. Polytheism. So what would happen is people would go and they would pray to a God. But what happens when that God doesn't give you what you want? There's another God. And so you can just go to the other God. And what happens when he or she doesn't give you what you want? Well, you can go to another God and you simply wash, rinse, and repeat. You just keep doing it and keep babbling and keep saying the things that you want. If asking one didn't work, just go to another. And Christ knows better. You must know whom you pray to. You must know what this God is like. You will never pray rightly if you don't know who this God is. If you think that God only listens to correct prayer, then you will never give honest prayer. If you think that God is too busy to listen to your minor prayers, then you will keep yourself from rewards and blessings that he is more than happy to give you if you would utter them in prayer. If you think that God is too weak to help you, you simply won't give him credit for what he is doing. You won't pray to him as you ought. If you think that God simply refuses to help you because he's mean or he's angry with you. If you think that God simply automatically gives you what you want. In any of these things, if you don't understand who God is, you will never pray correctly. But there is only one God And he is the only God to which you can pray to. And so praying to any other God, praying to any other conception of what God is, is praying to nothing more than a fairy tale. It's praying to something that you don't understand and does not exist. There's only one God who truly exists. And notice then the intimate language that Christ uses here. It's not just knowing that God in your head, knowing what he is like, knowing his attributes, but it's knowing him personally. He is not just when you pray to God, but Christ is when you pray to your father. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. Your father watches over you. It is an intimate knowledge where you are to know God. So the question becomes: Even before we start to pray, do you know God? Do you know whom you pray to? Do you know this Father as Father, or do you simply know Him as some sort of autocratic person or being who sits up and orders the world? Do you know Him as a God who looks down and want, rightly wants to hear and to delights in the prayers of His people? John fourteen, five through eleven. Jesus has reported to his disciples that he's going away and Thomas says to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? It's a good impulse. Thomas says, you're going away? That's great. Can we go with you? If you don't tell us where you're going, we can't follow you. We need to know where you're going so that we can go too. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, You would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The only way you will ever know God as Father is to know Jesus as Son, because the Father is in Jesus and Jesus is in the Father, and there is no way for you to get to the Father except through Jesus, and that includes in prayer. No one comes to the Father in prayer except through Christ. To know God the Father in prayer is to know Jesus Christ, to have trusted in him and to have thrown yourself before him in mercy and asking that the cross and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ might have paid the penalty for your sin, trusting and believing in that fully. Then and only then can you know that God will hear your prayers. We are not saying that a God will reward prayers, but the one and only true God who is only accessible through Christ will answer your prayer. Secondly, while God is not many, he is also able to hear us. God is able to hear us. Donald Whitney's extremely helpful little book uh, called The Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life has a unique, I think, and helpful analogy of God in its opening pages about prayer. He talks about this satellite display in New Mexico. And what it is is 27 satellites that are 25 feet in diameter. It's called the Very Large Array because scientists have extraordinarily big imaginations. So they called it a Very Large Array. And that is literally the title of this thing, which is ridiculous. It's the ridiculously very large array to us. So it's this huge array of satellites. And all it's meant to do is capture radio signals from outer space. And the idea is both to listen for alien life, but it's also to collect data on background radiation and all this stuff. All it's there for is to collect radio signals from outer space. In the years since it has been up, it has collected millions of bits of information, probably billions of bits of information. The force of all of those radio waves hitting those antennas amount to what is basically the equivalent of a handful of snowflakes hitting the ground. That's a lot of listening for a very little voice. God hears better than that. God hears thousands of snowflakes hitting the ground all at once. He hears one snowflake loud and clear. God can hear your prayer. Simply because God is the God of the universe doesn't mean that he's too busy for your prayer. It doesn't mean He is incapable of hearing your prayer. That your prayer is drowned out amongst all the billions of people who are uttering words to him. He hears your prayer. He is capable of hearing your prayer. Jesus insists that babbling... That simply making yourself known and saying it over and over again isn't a way to get God's attention or to make sure that he hears you. So you don't have to keep saying it over and over and over again as though God didn't hear you the first time. No, he heard you the first time. Very famous passage, very interesting passage in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah, who is faced with King Ahab who is a worthless king, led astray by Jezebel, his wife, to whom we will return later in this sermon. He is led astray, and and he has his country, then the northern kingdom of Israel, father, or found, uh, follow, excuse me, a God named Baal. And Elijah's sick of this, and so he says, listen, this is what we're going to do. We're going to have a little bit of a face-off. My daughter and I had a brownie bake-off. Most of you have asked me about that. It's really rude, because you knew I lost, and you shouldn't have asked me about that. (laughs) But nevertheless, he has, he has this, this God face-off, and he says, all of the prophets, 450 of them of Baal, are going to go over here, and you're going to make a little, a little mound of wood. And I'm, poor, lowly little Elijah, is going to go over here, and I'm going to make a mound of wood. And this is what's going to happen. You are going to pray to Baal, and he is going to cast down, and, and we're going to see who lights up the fire by us praying first. And the prophets are, are yipping and yelling and cutting themselves and flaying themselves, trying to get God to hear. And about noon, after hours of this, Elijah finally speaks up and he says to them in First Kings 18:27, "Cry aloud, for he is a God." Which is interesting, right? He's a God. If you cry loud enough, he's bound to hear you. Cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing, he's thinking, or is relieving himself or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and he must be awakened. In other words, scream aloud, wake him up, get his attention, do whatever you have to do. Elijah, in the meanwhile, has people gather water upon water upon water, douses his wood, makes a trench around it, so the water fills up the trench and utters one small, minor, and almost insignificant prayer, and the fire from that devours everything. God hears your prayer. If you pray to something that isn't God, he can't because there is no other God. If you pray to the one true and living God, he hears your prayer. And what's more than that, third, God desires to hear your prayer. Jesus tells us to not incessantly say the same things over and over again. He doesn't mean that God doesn't, doesn't just mean that God doesn't need to be informed, but he also means that his, the repetition doesn't make him want to answer it any more than any other. Just because you say things over and over and over again, he doesn't come to the conclusion that, oh, he must really want this. He knows before you ask, it says, whether you want it or not. He knows your heart before you do and better than you do. Your incessant prayer doesn't make God want to hear it anymore. The title of our sermon series is taken from Proverbs 15.8. The sacrifice of the wicked is detestable to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. God loves to hear the prayers of his people. He loves it. You don't have to keep babbling to him so that he takes you seriously. God takes it seriously. He longs and loves to hear the prayers of his people. This doesn't mean that we are not to be consistently and always in prayer before God. Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5 says this, See that no one repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Jesus Christ for you. Jesus says don't babble. Paul says pray without ending. Those two things are not in conflict. What Paul wants you to do is through everything in your life, Give thanks to God, rejoice in God for all the good things that he gives you. Everything you see, everything that you experience is something of a gift from God. He says, you ought to be continually talking to God. God delights in your prayers so much, he never wants you to stop doing it. It doesn't mean that you just babble the same things over and over again. He doesn't want that. Just like no one just wants to hear my kids. Same jokes, over and over again. I say the same thing to them over and over and over again. Neither one of us like that. But talking to them is a pleasure and a joy. And God enjoys hearing the prayers of his saints. It is his delight. So always pray without ceasing. Fourth, God is all-knowing. Jesus affirms that you don't have to babble because God already knows what you're going to ask. And so here we come down to one of the things that I think Christians are just totally mistaken on. Prayer is not for God. Prayer is not for any benefit to God. You are not helping God out. God is not sitting up in heaven saying, wait, 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 Carl has cancer? No one told me Carl had cancer. Well, thank goodness he prayed. No one's up there saying, Marge's marriage is in trouble. Is the answering machine down again? God knows all things before you ask. You are not informing him of anything. You are not helping him come to decisions. You're not helping him with anything. Prayer is not for God. Prayer is for you. And thus we're on to point two, rewards. God rewards. Going back up to verse five. Jesus says, when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. They love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners so that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door And pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now, immediately upon reading that, you think, why would a pastor get up in front of people, pray out loud, have a service where we've prayed out loud several times, and then read that passage where Jesus says, don't do that. It is clear from Scripture and other places that corporate prayer is not outlined by or not outlawed by what Jesus says here. Jesus is prone to using exaggeration and hyperbole. He's pushing everything as far to one side as he can. Look up in verse 3. He's talking about the giving to the needy. And he says, But when you give to the needy, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, I've often commented that my left hand is incredibly stupid. If I lose it in some sort of industrial accident, I could replace it with a hook and actually get more functionality from it at times. My wife makes fun of me when I grill or I do anything with my right hand. My left hand is just over here doing something weird like this. I has no idea. It's, it's lost, okay? Even if that is the case, my left hand always knows what my right hand is doing because my left hand and my right hand are part of me. It's clearly hyperbole. And when we come down to these verses when he says, you are not to ever pray in public, what he doesn't mean is that public prayer is wrong. Jesus himself engages in public prayer many, many times. In Matthew 11, just several chapters later, verses 25 and 26, Jesus declares, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. In John 27 and 28, Jesus tells people, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven, making very clear that his Father who was in heaven was listening to his prayer. The voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Both of those very public prayers. Jesus is not saying that you shouldn't pray in public. The problem is not about praying with the public. It's about praying to the public. And this is why they're hypocrites. Ostensibly, they are praying thus to God. God. But what Jesus is saying is what they're really doing is praying to the people on the street. They don't want anything from God. They don't need to say anything to God. They've really got nothing to say to God. They're empty inside. But what they really want to do is they really want to pray in such a way that men pick up on it and they give them applause and they say, man, that Pharisee, what a good prayer. And Jesus immediately says, no, they've got their reward. Don't think, by the way, that reading this, that you can get away from this problem by simply praying in the dark and simply praying in secret. That's not a help. One of the best preachers of the early church, John Chrysostom, says this, Indeed, we ought to pray in the church publicly, by all means, but in such a spirit as this, because God always seeks the intention of everything that is done. Since even if you should enter into your closet, and having shut the door, should do it only for display, the doors will do you no good. Going into secret doesn't help. If you tell people, listen, I've got to get up so early because I love to pray, love to pray, and I have so much to pray for, Bobby praying for you, post it on Facebook. Like, that doesn't help. That is the exact thing that Jesus is talking about. Going into a shut room and praying by yourself doesn't help if you're still just doing it so that you would get public approval. That is what Jesus is talking about. Jesus mentions that they're hypocrites here simply because they're losing their reward. They've gotten their reward. They got the applause from men that they wanted, but they lose the reward from God. So let me ask you a quick question. We'll play a little little quiz game here. I've already kind of let the cat out of the bag, so it's not really fair. It's kind of cheating. But if I were to give you a blank on this sentence, how would most of you fill it? I think I've got a pretty good idea how most of you would fill it before this sermon. Our God hears our prayers and blanks our prayers. The vast majority of you might write in different verbs than what I'm trying to think of, but some of you, a good portion of you would write in answers our prayers. And that's primarily the way we think of prayer. But you'll notice that Jesus uses nothing like that here. He doesn't say God answers our prayers. Rather, he says God rewards our prayers. Now, it's a small thing, admittedly, and it's clear that Jesus does think that God answers our prayers, and there's nothing wrong with coming before God and asking him for things in prayer. Just one chapter later, in Matthew 7, Jesus will say this, "'Ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So it's not a problem of requesting things before God. Jesus knows you're going to do that, and it's perfectly acceptable to do that. Go before God and request things of him. But that is not the only type of prayer that you can offer. And as long as you think that prayer is primarily about asking things from God, you will miss a huge portion of what prayer is there for. Even in our service today, we have pointed this out to you. Maybe not explicitly, but implicitly. We are doing things in this service where we pray, not asking God for anything. We begin our service with a prayer of adoration, which is nothing but telling God how worthy he is. We might ask for him to show up, but that's completely secondary to what the prayer is actually there for. The prayer is simply there to declare our belief that God is awesome and mighty and wonderful and worthy to be praised. Just like when we confess to him, we talk about our need for repentance. We talk about the worthiness of Jesus Christ to give us forgiveness and mercy. We might ask that God forgives that sin, but frankly, a sin that is committed and then confessed is enough. We can ask God for it, but better to go before God and declare that Jesus Christ has forgiven us for it, to confess our trust in what Christ has done. We ask for forgiveness, but we do so on the basis of what Jesus Christ has already done. We are confessing something to him not even just requesting. These things themselves are rewarded, not just answered. We ought to both confess and request from God. We are rewarded in that our prayers will help mold us in the holiness of God, not simply when we ask to be made holy, but in the act of praying itself, God makes us holy. Our prayers help remind us of our reliance in faith upon God, Simply going to him as we are going to see is an act of humility. It reminds us that we have nothing good outside of him. Our prayers confer our confidence in God. Our prayers allow us to confer with God. And all of this, it is our prayers that bring us the reward, which brings us, of course, to the prayers. God doesn't just reward us for being around prayer. He doesn't reward us for thinking about prayer for talking about prayer for meditating on prayer for preaching on prayer for showing up for prayer. In all of these corporate times when we gather together, if while somebody is praying, your mind is thinking about the beautiful grass out in the field, the work that you've got to do tomorrow, how tired you might be, how bored you are with this, how eh, 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 all of that stuff, if you are not actively praying with them, there is no reward for you. I don't care how many prayer services you show up for. God rewards the prayers not the presence in the light of prayers, not you being there when people pray, but your actual prayers. And no commentator with his salt could ever come to this and point out that Jesus just flatly expects that we're going to be prayerful people. Verse 5, when you pray. Verse 6, when you pray. Verse 7, when you pray. Verse 9, pray like this. He just assumes that you're going to be people of prayer. He assumes that people who have listened to the sermon up to this point would be people like those of the Beatitudes. And assuming that you're like the people of the Beatitudes, these should be people who need to pray. They are people who are poor in spirit, who mourn, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who are pure in heart, who are peacemakers. These people, Jesus says, if you are like them, you are a praying people. People who are poor in spirit, pray. People who are meek, pray. People who are peacemakers, pray. So the question then becomes, why don't we pray? And for that, we turn back to the book of James. James is an interesting book, one of the earliest books in the New Testament, and he has some very harsh words for his people in James chapter 4. We'll read the first seven verses there. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You do not ask, or you ask, excuse me, and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. That should much more appropriately be you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But God gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God oppresses, opposes excuse me, the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. There are two problems here. In light of prayer. The first problem is they do not ask. They do not ask. Matthew has told us you should seek, ask, and knock. And and James says you guys don't even ask. The question is why? He says very clearly in verse 2, You desire but you can't have, so you murder. Which is very strange, frankly. One, that he would write so lightly about them murdering people. He doesn't say you've got a problem with anger to them. He says you've got a problem with prayer. And yet he brings up this idea of murdering people. And frankly, it's kind of weird because it says you desire and you don't have. But he doesn't say you steal, which is the more normal thing to connect with it. He says you desire and you can't have, so you murder My guess is that this is drawing an example from somewhere else. I don't think that his people actually murdered, but he's comparing them to a murderer. He's comparing them to Jezebel. Back in 1 Kings 21, Ahab, who is the king over Israel, looks over to his left, and he sees this beautiful vineyard owned by Naboth. And he goes to Naboth, and he says, Naboth, brother, I would love to have that vineyard. What can I give you for it? And Naboth says, listen, this is part of my inheritance from the Lord. I cannot possibly give it to you. I don't care what you offer me. It is the Lord's gift to me. I, I am the one who has been stewarded with it. I can't sell it. Ahab goes back to his kingdom and like a petty little incompetent whiner cries because he can't get what he wants and he goes on a little bit of a hunger strike until his wife comes in and she says, what are you doing? You are king over Israel. I'll take care of this. And she gets people to talk bad about Naboth. And they take him outside, they stone him. She goes and gets his field and gives it to them, gives it to her husband. He doesn't pray, he doesn't ask. He doesn't talk to God about it so that he can be eased in his pain. What he does is complain and cry about it to Jezebel, and she goes and murders to give him what he wants. He desired and couldn't have, so she killed so that he could. And she is, by the way, always known, whenever she is mentioned in the book of Revelation especially, she is known as an adulteress, which is why in verse 4 he calls the church at large adulteresses, feminine, because they are acting like Jezebel. People, according to James then, who don't pray are pagans who don't know God. That is what people who don't pray are, because they're not humble. Secondly, he says they do pray, but they don't get They don't get because they want to waste what they're asking for on worldly things. And he goes and he talks about the fact that they want to waste it on themselves. And to be a friend with the world is to be an enmity with God. They are not asking for the things that God wants. They're asking for the things the world wants. And James' point is kind of like, well, then go ask the world for it. Asking God for things of the world will never get you the things of the world. Ask the world for the things of the world. Which is why prosperity preachers don't simply go to their closets and ask God for money. That's why they look at you and ask you for money because they want the things of the world, so they ask the world for them because God ain't going to give it to them. When you want the things of God, you need to go to God to receive those things. The solution for both of these comes in verse 6. The problem is pride. He opposes the pride but gives grace to the humble. Why don't they pray? Why don't they pray in verse 2? Because they can go and get it. If they want something and they can't have it, they'll just go and murder. They'll go and steal. They'll fight and they'll quarrel. They'll do everything in their power to get it, but they think that they can get it on their own, through their own mechanisms, through their own means. They don't need God to answer their prayers, and so they don't pray. Friends, I am sure this is true of me, and I'm sure it's true of many of you. You don't pray because you're not humble enough to pray you think that you can get it on your own. You think the things that you're asking for are stuff that you can pile up to yourself. Even when we go back and we pray for food, a very simple thing that is ubiquitous in America. It's all over the place. Realize how much grace there is from God that we get food. Not only do we have to have people who prepare that food for us, which is gracious, We have to have people who go out and buy that food for us, which means they have to have skills that give them jobs. And there have to be jobs available as well. And not only that, there has to be a way to get the food from where it is to where we can buy it, which means we need people who take it, which means we need internet to be able to keep the logistics up to get our food where it goes. We lose the internet. You will find very quickly how starvation feels. Because when the logistics go down, you ain't going to get food. There's going to be a ton of farms, and there's going to be very little food for you. Not for some of you. Some of you have piles of cans of stewed tomatoes and eight deer dead in your freezer. I know that. You will live for a lot longer than me. But nevertheless, eventually you will run out of food. It is a gift of God that you have access to food at all. So when we sit down and we thank God for food, it is not for nothing. It is because we realize that without the providence of God over all of those things, we would have nothing to eat not to mention the very beating of our hearts. It's not a minor thing that we thank God for what we have. It is the humble man who realizes how much he needs God who goes to him in prayer. They don't pray because they can get it on their own, or they pray because they're going to waste it on themselves. So the second solution happens in verse 7. You don't pray because you're not humble, and you pray for things that you don't want because you have not submitted yourself to God. That includes your desires, Submit your desires to him. You want God to reward your prayer? Pray the things that he wants. It's a really simple game. God wants good things for you. Do you want good things for you? Pray the things that God wants. Stop asking for things that God is totally unwilling to give you, which, by the way, is a reward of its own. One of the scariest things you could ever have is God giving you something you wanted that isn't good for you because he will give it to you eventually. What James is saying here is submit yourselves not just, not just to say, I I won't be proud anymore, but to say, what you want, God, in faith, what you want is what's best for me. And I want for me what you want for me. Give me what you want. We are to be humble in all of this. And of course, all of this comes by faith. All of it comes by faith. It is the one thing that wraps all of this together. We cannot know God without faith. We cannot believe in reward from God without faith because the reward we see is not going to come immediately. If it came immediately, we all, like Pavlov's dogs, would be down on our knees all the time, but it doesn't. We have to wait for it by faith. We pray because we believe in faith We are humble because we know we should be because we read it in God's word by faith. All of it is centered and focused around faith. None of this is activated without faith. John Owen, famous Puritan. Almost anything you can find by him, you should read as long as it is an adapted version. His full books are hard but he gave a warning that all of us need to hear. And this is pointed more at me and the other elders. When you hear the quote, you'll understand why. But certainly it applies to every single one of us. Owen writes, A minister may fill his pews, his communion role, and the mouths of the public. But what that minister is on his knees in secret before God Almighty, that he is, and no more. Friend, you can accomplish a great number of things in this world. You might think that you have arrived. You might think that you've got it made. You might think that you are very capable. You might think that you can handle anything that life can throw at you. You may think that you have it all figured out. You may think that you've got the depths of theology covered and that you've got the practice and the actualization of Christianity at hand. But I'm telling you, what you are in secret before God is all you are. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word on prayer. I praise you, Father, for you are kind to us in so many ways. And certainly there is not one of us in here who have arrived when it comes to prayer. And I, I am a horrible offender at this, the worst. I should know better, and I don't. So we pray for the things that you want We pray that over the course of the next month, that I personally and others would grow better at prayer, more fervent in prayer, more dedicated to your glory and seeking it in prayer. Not praying for the things that we want, not praying for the things of the world, but praying for eternal and lasting things, things that you long to provide to us. May we pray God-honoring prayers May we pray prayers that bring glory to Jesus Christ in their working out and their actualization. And may you give them to us that we might see the glory and the goodness and the power of prayer. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen.